Would you join me in opening your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5? Our text today is just a little bit longer uh, than what we've been normally dealing with. But verses 1 through 11 really hang together, and I think you'll see that. And I didn't think that Peter's final greeting deserved a whole sermon at this point, at least. Uh, so we're going to finish up 1 Peter today. This will be, our, I believe, our 12th sermon in 1 Peter, and it's going to be our last. Um, so Peter closes his letter with a particular focus on the church. What is it? What is her role? What does the church have to do with the Christian? So let's pray, and we'll turn to the text to answer some of those questions. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for your church that you've called us into. You've gathered us together today to sit under the authority and the perfection, the inerrancy and the infallibility, and the inspiration of your word. Father, would you conform our hearts to it? Would you change us according to its image and ultimately according to your image? Father, would you use these words for your glory and for our sanctification? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So would you join me in reading 1 Peter chapter 5? Hear God's word. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, your cares on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thy Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is a Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. In American Christianity, we have this little phrase that's a little bit odd. Have you ever heard someone talk about a personal relationship with Jesus? 
a personal relationship with Jesus. For, for some reason, this little phrase has become the center of many gospel presentations. But if you want to go and try and find that phrase in the Bible, you would fail because it's not in there. Not once does the Bible speak about a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, to be totally clear, I think that the people who coined this phrase were doing something good. This was a phrase that was used by people like Billy Graham, people like D.L. Moody. And when they used this phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, what they wanted to emphasize was the necessity of commitment. They wanted to emphasize that Christianity is more than just going through certain rituals, just going through certain motions, just showing up occasionally. No, Christianity is about active participation in Christ. And that's what these people that use this term were trying to convey. And so I think that emphasis is good. We've actually talked about that idea over the past few sermons. But, but somewhere along the way, this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus got all turned around. Now, what happens when people say that is that they mean they have a private relationship with Jesus or an individualistic relationship with Jesus. We take this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus to mean that I take my Bible and I go do my quiet time, that I get alone with Jesus and I elevate those experiences above everything else. And so the statistics actually bear that out, that this is the way people think. In 2017, Pew Research estimated that one-third of Americans identify as spiritual but not religious. In 2022, to kind of narrow down on just Christians, Ligonier's State of Theology study found that two-thirds of Christians consider private devotions to be a valid replacement for public worship. There's this common idea among American Christians that I can just take my Bible, I can go off, be, my, be on my own, and that's enough for the Christian life. But we as a church confess the Westminster Confession of Faith, and this is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. It says, the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the house and family of God, outside of which people cannot ordinarily be saved. In order to gather and perfect the saints in this life until the end of the world, Christ has given the ministry, scriptures, and ordinances of God to this universal visible church. By his own presence and spirit, he enables the church to function in this way according to his promise. And so the difference between these two views is stark. Compared to, to popular ideas about religion and spirituality today, the Westminster Confession of Faith sounds mean, it sounds exclusionary and harsh, but, but we don't believe that just because it's a tradition, just because um, it's, it's what our confession says. No, we believe that because it's biblical. If you want to talk about that, if you, if you're, if you have doubts about that, we can sit down and talk about that in detail. But today we're focusing on 1 Peter, and Peter has, has quite a lot to say about the church. For Peter, the church, this visible body of believers, is an essential element of the Christian life. As far as Peter is concerned, Christians are called to be a part of the one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Christians are called to be a part of the one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Now, Peter doesn't use those terms directly. I'm, I'm borrowing those from the Nicene Creed. But as I was studying this passage this week, I was struck by how those four words, one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, those four marks are present in this passage. So we're going to look at each of those four marks today as we work through the scripture. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. So first, the church is one. Let's start with verse one. So I exhort the elders among you, 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So Peter begins by addressing church leaders. Notice he's using three different words to describe these people. He calls them elders directly, but then he he uses two different verbs to describe what elders do. Elders pastor or shepherd, and elders exercise oversight, which comes into English the word bishop. And so some ways of reading the Bible would have those offices separated and split out, but we uh, would see biblically that all three of these things are, are one office. There's a, an office of leadership, the elder, who pastors and oversees the church. And so we have in our church a plurality of elders. We have multiple elders who lead the church. These people are people who are mature in faith, and they're called to guard and to guide the people of God in their midst. Likewise, when Peter refers to you who are younger, he's talking about everyone who isn't an elder. So those two words go together. You who are younger, which is one word in Greek, and elder, they're opposites. So an elder is one who is called to this church office. Those who are younger are those who are not. Now, there's a a really important underlying assumption here. If you think back to the very beginning of Peter's letter, you'll remember that he's writing to several churches across a large region. Primarily, when Peter writes generally to all of these churches in Asia Minor, he's able to assume that they are organized into local communities and that those local communities are gathered under ordained elders, ordained leaders. I don't want you to miss how big that is. He doesn't feel the need to make an argument for this. It's simply the case that the church does this. From the earliest days of people following Jesus, the church, God's people, are part of an institution. Now, as part of this institution, as part of the church, Peter gives both groups, elders and others, directions. For the elders, he warns against three vices. He warns against laziness, greed, and lust for power. For others, he warns against rebellion. And I think above all else, those things are the difference between a healthy church and an unhealthy church, between a thriving church and a dying church. So if you, if you want to kill a church, if you want a church to die, here's your blueprint. First, you make up your own elder qualifications. You ask, whose turn is it? Who's, who's next in line? Who's that longtime member who's, who's due for an honor just by virtue of showing up occasionally? Who's the most, most ruthless businessman who knows how to drum up giving and make a profit? Who's the person who thinks they have a key to, the, to a better kids program, to better outreach, but doesn't want to have anything to do with the hard work of doing that? If you want to kill a church, elect those people, but don't listen to them, complain about them, gossip about them, but, but never submit to them. That's a proven way to kill your church. It happens every day. It happens in churches all around the world. Churches die because they do this. They, they neglect Peter's instruction. They rebel and they elect unqualified leaders. Now, I, I hope and I believe that none of you want that for our church. 
I hope that you want our church to grow, not just in size, but in holiness and in faith. Well, there's a proven way to do that too. There's a way that God has promised to bless. First, find those among you who are dedicated, those who are generous, those who are humble. Find those people among you who love God's people and who desire, whose desire is to see you grow in grace. Elect those people and humbly submit to them. There's a really beautiful illustration in the letters of the early church father, Ignatius of Antioch. I'll mention him later as well. But he describes the local church as a harp and a choir. He says the elders together are like a harp that leads the congregation, that leads the choir in song. Not unlike how the piano accompanies us in singing. The piano or the harp, it's not the main focus. In fact, a good accompanist, accompanist will actually fade into the background and let the congregation sing. The piano doesn't demand obedience. The harp doesn't demand obedience. It doesn't demand attention. Instead, it gently directs and guides the singers and makes them the focus. The relationship between the elders and the congregation should be the same. It should be a harmonious relationship where the elders work to cultivate the music of the congregation. They should be able to fade into the background, giving gentle nudges to lead the congregation into deeper joy and into deeper holiness. This, this gentleness is what characterizes the elders in 1 Peter 5. And that's what it looks like to be one, to be united, to be in harmony together. We are called to be one, so your call is to cultivate a spirit of unity. To the elders, I think that Peter's advice is, is really abundantly clear. To those who are not elders, here's a couple of pieces of advice. First, be very careful who you elect as elders. I'll tell you now that you are blessed by elders that look like what Peter describes. Your elders are dedicated, your elders are generous, and they're humble. And you should be grateful for that. But none of those people are able to serve you forever. So be looking for people to raise up, to prepare, to take on this responsibility. Be looking for those who exemplify Peter's description. And when the time comes, elect them to office. Second, and this is perhaps even more important, you should be a member of a local church. Your elders have a responsibility to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. But that is very difficult to do when they can't identify who that flock is. This is really counterintuitive in our culture, which decries any sort of commitment, any sort of submission, but that's what God actually calls you to. And it's, a, and it's an essential part of Christian discipleship to be under the authority of a local church. So if you're not a member, I encourage you to come talk to me. I'd be happy to work through any of your questions or concerns about what that looks like. But the church is called to be one, to be united. And that starts with the local congregation. The church is one. Second, the church is holy. Look at verse 5. We're going to start in the middle of verse 5. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So Peter exhorts all Christians, all of us, 
And he describes the character of the church in this way. Particularly, he's describing what it means for the church to be holy. At its most foundational level, to be holy is to be set apart. As the church, we are set apart for God's purposes. Specifically, his purpose is to give us his grace and his care. So notice the distinction that Peter makes between the proud and the humble. He's drawing from the book of Proverbs there. The humble and the proud are distinguished by their hearts, by their relationship with God. Those who are proud and haughty are not of God, but those who are humble receive his grace. That's, that's the central distinction between a believer and an unbeliever. The believer receives the grace of God while the unbeliever does not. The believer humbles himself in repentance before God while the unbeliever does not. But there's more. Notice what humility looks like. Peter describes humility as casting your cares on God. There is a play on words there. The, we cast our cares on God because he cares for us. And once again, this marks the church out from the world. We've talked about this in a couple of other settings recently, but it does bear repeating. In the Old Testament, God's people are consistently referred to as those who call upon the name of the Lord. That's important because who you call, who you cast your cares on, tells me who you trust. Let me prove that. When your car breaks down in the middle of the night on the side of the road, who do you call? Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent. If you have an adult children, maybe one of them. If you get really in a bind, maybe you call the highway patrol or AAA. You call someone who can help you, who has a vested interest in helping you. Well, Christian, we read Psalm 124 at the beginning of the service here. Our help is in the name of the Lord. The church is defined as people who call on him, who look to him for help. The church is defined as the people who trust him. The church is defined as those who are set apart under his care to grow in holiness. We're called to be holy, so call upon God's name. Come before him in prayer, not just on your own. That's good, but not just on your own. Come before him in prayer with the saints. As we pray together in worship, unite yourself to us. As you encounter sin, humble yourself before God and seek his repentance. And most especially each week as we confess our sins in worship. And as you encounter trouble, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. That's what holiness looks like. And the church is holy. Third, the church is Catholic. Give verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, every week we say the Apostles' Creed, and it's really common for people to come up to me and ask me about that, in particular about the word Catholic, in kind of modern American language that often refers to the Roman Catholic Church. But Catholic simply means universal, and that's what we're talking about. The Catholic Church are all those throughout the world who profess faith in Christ. It's not just, that's not a, a, a word that the Roman Catholic Church has a monopoly on. But uh, that's kind of an aside. I don't want you to miss the, the, the picture that Peter is painting. 
In the early church, persecution took on a lot of different forms. But a, but a favorite of the Roman authorities was the lion. Thousands of martyrs were brought into public arenas and made to fight hungry lions. So when Peter uses this image of a roaring lion seeking to devour you, he's not being hyperbolic. This is an image that, that Christians would have known. The roaring lion was a real threat to the people that he's writing to. In fact, within a century of this letter being written, one of the pastors in this region, Ignatius of Antioch, who we mentioned earlier, he would become famous for being fed to lions. And if you find a picture of him today, he's usually represented alongside two lions. So Peter gives this, this really vivid warning. He talks about the devil who seeks to devour us. He seeks to capture us. He seeks to separate us from God's grace. And so we're called to resist him and to fight him off. What's the motivation for doing that? What's our encouragement? How does God restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us? Well, one way is the church throughout the world, or the Catholic Church. We are strengthened knowing that the same sufferings are being suffered by those around the world. We tend to get really myopic about this. American Christians love to talk about the church in America, and the state of the church in America, how we're declining, how we're struggling. Now, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. Those are real issues that we need to deal with. Those are real things we need to um, talk about. We live here, and we want the church here to flourish. But I think it would be helpful for us to get a little bit of perspective. In Canada, 68 churches were burned to the ground by arsonists in 2021. In Nigeria, since the year 2000, 62,000 Christians have been killed by the terrorist group Boko Haram. In communist China, pastors are jailed, Bibles are burned, and church buildings are destroyed by government agents regularly. In Israel, it is common for Christians to lock themselves in their homes during Jewish festival seasons to avoid being beaten and spat on. In India, since 2008, 54,000 Christians have lost their homes to vandalism. They're homeless at the hands of Hindu and Muslim extremists. Now, thank God that that kind of stuff has not come to our source. Thank God that we've been spared from these persecutions, because I think that if we were under some of these persecutions, the membership of the American church would be cut in half overnight. But why, you may ask, does God let that happen? If God cares for his church, like the scripture says, why does he let that happen? The answer is that ultimately those things are for the exaltation of the church, for the extension of Christ's dominion. The church suffers for the sake of the gospel, so that people would come to know Christ, and so that the church would be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. Christian, these are your brothers and your sisters. You may share some common heritage with your unbelieving neighbor, but you share a common source and a common life with Christians around the world. You also share a common enemy who seeks to destroy all of us. We're called to be Catholic. So remember the saints around the world. Remember them for your sake, for your strength, for your hope. And remember them for their sake. Pray for their deliverance and their growth in the faith. The church is Catholic. Fourth, the church is apostolic. Look at verse 12. 
Thus, Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, when it comes to verses like this, our temptation is always to skip over them. But, but we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And this is Scripture. But that does raise an important question for us. Why did God lead these verses in here? What's the, the use that we're getting out of this conclusion? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment what it would have been like to be a member of the early church when the apostles were still living. The New Testament is not yet complete. 1 Peter is actually quite an early letter in the New Testament. And so the source of your knowledge about faith, the source of your instruction is almost entirely oral. Furthermore, it's, it's clear from the New Testament and other documents that there were people floating around all over the place who claimed to be Christians, who claimed to follow Christ, but who did not receive their ministry from Christ. This is what Paul calls super apostles. So if you're getting new scripture, if you're getting new revelation, it is absolutely imperative that it is verified. And that's what Peter's doing. He's verifying his testimony. He's gathering witnesses. He points to Silvanus, who got this letter directly from Peter, not from other, some other person. It's not a game of telephone. It's coming directly from Peter. He points to she who is at Babylon, which is most likely a reference to the Roman church. These churches, the Roman church, and the churches in Asia Minor, Asia Minor would, have, would have had communication with each other. That's another source of verification. And he also points to Mark, who is likely the author of the Gospel of Mark, and who would have been well known to the churches in this region. And so in other words, when Peter is doing his greetings, he's gathering up witnesses. He's gathering up people to verify his statements. And it's a way of saying that this letter is authentic. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, first, it's an assurance that our faith is apostolic. We share in the faith of the apostles, the faith once delivered to all the saints. That's, apostolic has been at times a buzzword. Most commonly around here, you'll see it on certain Pentecostal churches. What they mean is that their particular view of worship and sign gifts are apostolic. Roman Catholics will often refer to their tradition as apostolic. And they mean to say that their theology and all of its contours was handed down orally from the apostles. Occasionally, you can catch non-Christian groups like Mormons, and they'll say that their, their faith is apostolic insofar as it's a correction of all the corruptions from the church over the thousands of years. But when we say we're apostolic, here's what we mean. We mean to say that we hold the teachings of the apostles as handed down to us in the scriptures. To be an apostolic Christian is to be committed to the New Testament and by extension to be committed to the entire Bible as an inspired and infallible witness sufficient to direct us in all matters of doctrine and piety and all matters of faith and life. We're called to be apostolic, so hold fast to the faith once delivered to the saints. That means, first and foremost, holding fast to the scriptures, which is God's chosen means of preserving and passing down his will for us. Now, I think most of us will affirm those things in theory, but we have a hard time living it out. We say that we want to have a New Testament, an apostolic faith, but when we look at the clear directives of the apostles, 
Often our principles suddenly get wobbly. Recently, I was reading the, the writer Tim Challies, who calls people who do this, yeah, but Christians. A yeah, but Christian is someone who, upon hearing a clear command from Scripture, immediately starts looking for loopholes. I hear this all the time. Yeah, but that's not practical. Yeah, but that's not what I'm used to. Yeah, but my situation is a little bit more complicated than that. Whenever someone says something like that, what they're really saying is, yeah, I know the Bible says to do that, but I'm just not going to do it. But to be an apostolic church means to be continually reforming our minds and our hearts to the, the teaching of the apostles, standing firm in the faith. And it means to be constantly turning to the scriptures in faith, not primarily to, le- to learn, to be, to be motivated or comforted, although the scripture does all of those things. No, our first priority in coming to the scriptures is to be changed by them, to be conformed to them. That's what it means to be apostolic. The church is apostolic. So are you a churchly Christian? Do you seek to be united to other Christians? Do you humble yourself before God and call upon his name? Do you remember your place in relation to the church throughout the world and throughout time? Do you cling to the apostles' teaching? That's what it means to be a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This is what it means to be a part of the church established by Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a part of his covenant people. We've talked a lot of, about a lot of different things in our study of First Peter. We've dealt with salvation and suffering, family, government, eschatology, baptism, and even more. But, but Peter chooses to bring all of this together under this point. He chooses to end his letter with exhortations about the church. Why? Because the church is where our Christian lives are lived. There's no other place for it. There's no such thing as an unchurched Christian. To be a Christian is to be a part of the church, to suffer with her, to grow with her. And so if you, wanted to, if you want to be united to Christ, you need to be united to his bride. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.